0: with the start with the weather conversation. Yeah.
1: So you were saying oh. something well you were saying something about like habit and habitat. Like that's what you're doing with with clients.
0: Correct. Yeah, the, the big push there is I just want I want everyone to you know my my consulting clients primarily, right? So Yeah. They've they've hired me, they have brought me on to figure out solutions for them, obviously to put them them in a better position for success. But the big thing is that habitat development or habitat improvement takes time to develop. So what I'm really trying to do, that's kind of where this coaching program that I've evolved to is coming into play more because I really want to make this push. That's why I'm trying to push on these guys is this habits, then habitat mentality, where if they have mature bucks on their property already, you know, they're not there as consistent as they will be, because the habitat isn't, you know, there's holes in that habitat. They're not there as consistently. And it's a lot easier to put pressure on your property when you have poor habitat. The, the big things that I'm always looking at, you know, cover is obviously essential. And that's one of the main ways you reduce pressure on your property is by adding cover. Cover and consistency are really the only two things that can actually reduce pressure. Cover obviously comes with habitat consistency comes in a lot of different forms but you know a lot of that is habits as well you know showing up on your property one day out of the week to just quick check cameras and you're driving your atv around those deer only hear that atv once a week that's not very consistent so little things like that you try and get this mentality going and then as that habitat improves now their chances just doubled you know it's now you're creating a better environment for mature deer to spend time in. Sure. And you've developed these good habitats because you've hunted with lower quality habitat and everything just kind of slowly increases at the same pace.
1: Yeah. So that's a, that's a good question that I always struggle with is uh, how often I check my trail cameras because like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't have, cell I have one cell cam, but it's more of a security camera for our property. So okay. then the question always becomes like, do you know if uh people always say like I noticed a buck hitting a scrape 2 days in a row and the third day I went out there and I killed him um you know and that can work with a cell cam mm-hmm. otherwise if you're just checking a regular cam you got to have luck on the timing of that scenario right but yeah. you got to be willing to go check that cam and then be able to hunt immediately like as you're checking it like oh shit he's here <laughs> I got to get up a tree oh but, yeah like, yeah you- for sure so that's like something I always struggle with like uh so I reset. Yeah, this is a, a fun story here is I set, um, I made four mock scrapes in early September and I set nine of my cameras out in early September and I went back to go check them all. What is today? October 13th. I checked them all last Friday. So the October 8th. How big of a property are we talking here? I'm just trying to visualize this. Okay. 110 acres and it looks like a T. So you come in from the bottom of the T. And then it, and then it's a, it's a, there's ag fields on the top, it's hill, hill country. So ag fields on the top valley in the bottom. So the T is, is through the ag fields. And then the top of the T is all like essentially valley that I, that okay. I have to hunt. So I have the valley and the kind of the tops of the ridges, but no ag up on top. We don't own any of that.
0: Which way so, does that valley run? North, south or east, west? East, west.
1: Yep. So I'm coming in from the south. So a northwest wind is always what I want. You know, I want yeah. that cold front wind. But anyway, so so I went in there to, to check those cameras. Um, and I just wanted to know my first camera pull. I didn't get any decent bucks, just a ton of does. And I, the property last year, I didn't get any decent box. in the year before that. I got two, um, but that was because the property had been untouched for like eight years or something like that. So then we built a cabin on it and yada 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 and just kind of push those maturity year off seemed like, so. But then I went to go check them, um, and I got two two new mature bucks that are bucks that were there year last year, um, but I also had two cameras that we had a trespasser come through. Um, he cleared the card and then turned my cameras off. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it's like that was so annoying. And I you know, know
0: I've I've had sorry to cut you off but no i've had three cameras stolen in the last four years or so and it's not even the camera that gets stolen that drives me nuts it's the data that you lose
1: yes it always that's that's why i could completely just just like like, okay fine take the camera send me the photos i just want to know what the (laughs) hell was there you know exactly and one of the mock scrapes was it was freshened up like within a couple days. So I was like, okay, there's a good buck here. And I look over and the dude, it's, it's a very strange scenario. So, you know, in the form of a T right, is the property um, the cameras on the East and West of the top of the T did not pick up anything, any people, and they were totally untouched. The two cameras in the very center of the property were the two that were touched. Um, and and they, they also, they cleared the cards and then they left the door open of the camera and the camera was not locked. They could have just taken them, you know, mm. and both of them were $300 cameras. So I was like, okay, like you have no ethics cause you're stealing my shit
0: Yeah. or and my your data trespassing
1: and trespassing, but you have some sort of ethics because you didn't steal my camera. Yeah. <laughs> you could have taken the camera and walked away. So I was, you know, it was probably,
0: like, it's probably like a, they got caught and they were trying to meet you halfway in the middle, right? Like I'll clear <laughs> this card. So this guy doesn't know it was me, but I'm courteous enough, right. generous enough to leave the cameras for you. You should be thanking him.
1: I know. It's kind of one of those things. I just don't, I don't know how to feel about it. Like, I'm like, thank you, but fuck you.
0: Yes. <laughs> you so I, the data, man. I, I uh, completely agree. It's just, yeah, you get, you get so addicted to the information. You know Mm -hmm. you just it's this constant chess match and every every little thing counts you know i i always refer to them as breadcrumbs every little breadcrumb counts right you're you're being you're trying to be this like deer detective and figure out what these deer are doing you know that that that's the name of the game is figure out these deer without them knowing that you're trying to figure them out or them you're trying to pursue them because then they alter their patterns and their routines so you know, back to the topic or your question, I guess, is over checking cameras. Yeah, that's a it's a hard thing. I, you know, it really depends on the situation. But you have to put yourself in that deer's shoes, right in the in the potential of what that buck could do from his eyes. So that's how I always visualize it. I, I'm as guilty as you are, you know, I want that information. And my thing is, I just Like I always try to hunt my property from the outside in and I do the same when it comes to checking cameras. So I try to layer my cameras into the property and you kind of grade these cameras on a level of, you know, high value, but also high risk to pull that card. Mm -hmm. And I work from the outside in where those cameras on the field edges that I can zip up to on my e-bike or even drive my truck right up to you know, where if I do push deer off, you know, they don't go very far. Usually you bump a deer off of a field in the dark with a pickup and they go like one layer of cover deep. They're back out feeding in that field. They're used to vehicles, you know, they're used to just like, I'll step aside and let this vehicle come through sort of situation. E-bike during the middle of the day, maybe find a, a rainy day or a windy day or something. I'm still pretty cautious when I'm checking those cameras on the edges because those does always linger along those edges next to that food source. And all it takes is for you to bump those does in the next row of cover. And then, you know, potentially your buck is in that row of cover. Maybe it's two, three rows of cover out. You know, it just depends on how your property lays. Is it, you know, is there a brushy corner and then that finger that goes out and that bucks out on that finger. And, you know, they, it can just, it can be dicey. You know, my situation growing up hunting super high pressured area. I mean, all of our neighbors are Amish. They hunt frequently. all year, you know, basically all year round, there's <laughs> feral dogs running around all the time. You know, it's just crazy. It's not, I, I was just hunting Minnesota public last night and I'm mostly, mostly a scouting mission. And I just kind of wanted to see what was going on there. I had scouted it this last winter, found some really good sign, but had not been back, so I just want to check it out. And it was just your typical first night on public evening where, you know, some guy hunting squirrels, dogs barking in the background. <laughs> people not stealthy at all a mile away on the trail, but the wind was blowing hard enough across the ridge top that I could hear almost every word they're saying. But you know, it's just like, you think about those things, you're like, yeah, we're all used to the pressure. It just comes in different forms. And really figuring out any property is figuring out where those pressures are changing that deer movement and understanding the whens and the whys. Because deer go everywhere. You know, once the sun goes down and there's this blanket of cover across everything, cause you know, the cover of darkness, now they're not afraid to do anything, they, they show up in your yard at night, they're eating out your bird feeder, they're nibbling on your shrubs, eating, you know, everything that you, everything that they can that's palatable to them. But then, you know, the next day we're running around trying to figure out where these bucks are. <laughs> so it really just comes down to the pressure. So when it comes to checking those cameras. I'm I'd be careful, but I check that outer layer. And if I don't have the Intel off of that, then my next opportunity, the best opportunity, then I bump into that next layer in, which is, you know, not as hard to access, you know, still up on the ridge top, but a few steps into the woods. And then you're just really trying to play it when you know that wind wouldn't put that buck in that area, especially if you have a you know specific deer mm-hmm. and that you know, kind of goes back to that deer detective mentality. If you can track one specific buck or try to focus on one specific buck, you're going to learn a lot more about your property. And then when these other bucks come in, you start to see these patterns like, oh, he's, he's spending time here. So this is a good spot to meet him. Or if he is in this area, he's going to be on that camera or this camera, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But you, you really start to understand that. And then, you know, when you can go into those areas and check those cameras without putting pressure on those deer or as much pressure, you know, and then the, the, perfect world is going there on a day you know like a really windy day or a rainy day or go in there on a windy day before it's going to rain for a day you know that's that's probably the perfect situation you got all that cover from the wind and then that rain moves in and it kind of washes any trace of you out of there right. but you know and then so you get into that second layer and again if you're not getting that intel you always have that that deeper layer but you know if you can collect the intel that you need without going into those layers and make they, a move on this deer or kill this deer then i don't even go in there i i just checked two cameras last week that i had not touched since july of 2020
1: <laughs> okay
0: so they've been sitting for
1: what 15 months 16 months yeah <laughs> yep
0: so i mean the big thing there though is another thing with trail cameras that I think a lot of people overlook. If you have your trail camera in a specific spot, you shouldn't get a lot of pictures, but every picture you get is valuable. So you know, another thing that I try to coach these guys on these clients is I just I try to get them to be intentional with these camera setups. You know, once you sure. once your property's set up and you've got you know a a, a truly well put together property where you're it's laid out, you're managing the pressure, you're leaving areas specifically for the deer to feel secure all the time. And you know, you're just you're avoiding everything that puts pressure on deer and creating this environment where you're moving deer around. Then it's really easy to put a trail camera out, right? You get this deer, they kind of pinch through these corridors that you've created for them. But that's you know that's a a utopic world of deer hunting. It's not realistic for most people, <laughs> it's fun. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun hunting that, and it's a lot of fun developing it. But at the same time, there's ways to kill deer in every situation. You just have to figure it out and it all revolves around pressure at the end of the day. Right. So having a camera in a spot that you were intentional by putting it there and it's intentionally there because you want to know if that deer is using this bedding area. Most situations with, you know, certain levels of pressure, which it's hard to get away from pressure at any time. It's just how bad it is. But certain areas, you're going to find this layer, layer these cameras in there, you're going to find this layer on your property that the does hardly ever go into. The bucks are always there. So after 15 months of a camera soaking in that spot, there might only be seven or 800 pictures on it. And so a lot of them might be squirrels, but you know, of the deer pictures, 80% of them are of bucks and only sure. 20% are of does and fawns. And that's when those deer get bumped to that level where they're all the way in that layer. And usually by that point in time, that buck that was in there is gone because he's already felt that pressure and he's gone. So, sure. it, you know, it, again, it just depends on, you know, one, the quality of the habitat or just the level of cover levels layers of cover that you have within your habitat and then how much pressure is there so
1: and, you know, like, I, I try to yeah so like a field edge it's so like a field edge camera um just to put i want to put a number on it like a field edge camera would you say like you can check that every two weeks and not really have a big issue with that or would you let it
0: on it, it really depends on your timing okay you know i mean you have to it it just depends on the timing but again even a field edge camera has risk with it because i i see this frequently in fact the i've just like just keep on playing this over and over in my head you know this scenario this year just hoping you know i've went through all the data i've went through everything over and over and over again and this is like you know, there's a spotlight on the calendar on this three to five day window of when I think I have the best chance of killing this deer. And I'm just like, okay, like, be patient, be patient. You know, I want to go out and hunt <laughs> as much as I can. But the reason I can't do it is this very specific spot where I think I can kill this buck is exactly what we're talking about. It's on a field edge, it's an alfalfa field this year, it's, a, it's the back end of a ridge. Oh, the ridge itself, the total ag land there is probably around a hundred acres or so just ag, but it's contour strips. And it wraps around the ridge and the, topo- the way the topography lays out this back corner is like a genuine back corner. You can't see it from anywhere else. Okay. It's not like a huge drop off, but it's enough of a crown in the hill that you can't see anything else. But I've went back there on numerous occasions to check the camera that I have in this fence crossing and I've bumped does, they bed right along those fence lines. You know, again, first layer of cover. They're bedding Mm -hmm. in burdocks and, you know, the random tree branch that's down and some prickly ash and a handful of shrubs that are there. And they're bedding right there. Sometimes they're on the backside, sometimes they're on the front side, just kind of really depends on what the wind's doing. And if you bump them, where do they go? They go to the next layer of cover. So again, there's that potential that that buck is in that next layer of cover or, or maybe two layers of cover in. Again, depends on how many layers you're actually working with. Sure. And if you bump those does into there, now he knows something's up. And from my experience, those bucks, you know, they, they don't blow out of the country when you do something like that. And this is why it can be so deceiving. The amount of pressure you actually put on your deer. And the only reason I know this stuff, and, you know, obviously I can't guarantee it's the same in every single situation. But the only reason I know this stuff is because the only way I was able to kill deer on this property is by paying attention to the pressure, the, just that cause and effect of everything that was going on on that farm. It's an active dairy farm. And there's 17 other guys that hunt it. <laughs> it's just a, And the, the habitat's not great. You know, it's, it's really not, you've got, there was a, there was a phase or an era where there was a lot more good habitat because. People were logging, things were getting thick, but it's evolved and it's getting worse every single year because every time the price of corn or beans goes up, anything that's flat, you know, the next row of flat area is logged off, bulldozed Mm -hmm. into a pile. Fence lines are coming out. You know, there's no more edges. The edges are just disappearing. And every year, you know, they're running these brush hogs through the edge of the woods and mowing off all these shrubs and there's taking a away all these layers of cover so at this point there's there's not a lot to work with the best form of cover that there is is topography that height's better than anything right the issue with that is just like switchgrass or just like a stand of pines cover alone doesn't make habitat just like a wide open alfalfa field where your food plot is food it's food alone right. food and cover together Equal habitat. So when you have good habitat, you have food and cover mixed together. You got a yeah. browsy the area. There's not a lot of that going on in this area. So it's difficult. I mean, it you you can do the most minor things and ruin your whole season. And it really <laughs> comes down to patience. It 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 forces you to be patient. So that's why, like I said, I really
1: just don't want to put a number on it.
0: <laughs> yeah well no i mean i would definitely put a number on it and i so that's actually something that i do excuse me that's actually something that i do with all of my consulting clients because that's how i that's how my brain works exactly like you said if i could put a number on it
1: it's just like works. it's almost like a number by the camera like okay this camera is really important and it's in are essentially it's very sensitive to pressure so this is a camera that you're only checking when you're hunting in here already or on your way out and you saw nothing or you got great wind conditions and at a at a maximum at a minimum it's like every three to four weeks like keep it bare minimum and checking this thing whereas some cameras are on a field edge and you're only getting nocturnal photos anyway and you're just looking for inventory on bucks and it's close to the farmhouse or whatever, like, yeah, go ahead and check that every week if you're curious, but like, you don't expect to kill anything off that, you know, it's more of just a flat out inventory camera.
0: Yeah. You know, I tend to overthink things (laughs) when it comes to deer, but again, it it comes, it's, it's just like this. It's just how my brain has evolved over the years because, (laughs) You get so obsessed with these deer and again, my situation, I mean, I, I really cut my teeth on honing in on very specific deer and it wasn't like, there was never a moment where I was like, you know, it'd be cool to single out that one deer and hunt just him this year. It was all just, if I was lucky to get a mature buck on camera, then I had to go after that deer. I didn't really have a lot of options. Right. Over time with habitat improvement and trying, you know, understanding my, pressure that I was putting on the property and how I was affecting things and, you know, just overall human activity, I was able to curve that a little bit over time. And also working with the neighbors, believe it or not, in the last couple of years, I've actually got a handful of these Amish on board to pass up younger deer. So that creates more opportunity. And, and now, you know, this year, I really actually have like maybe two mature bucks on camera. It's not a great year either. Um, but a couple of years ago, there was like four or five on camera. And I mean, I guess I never really gave you the background on that this property in particular is it's a, it's about a 1100 acre farm that's spread out and there's about little under 400 acres of like wooded slash pastured areas. But again, it's all, it's all broken up. So again, this was another advantage that I had growing up that it wasn't, fantastic property habitat wise or even age structure wise but there was opportunity because the way it laid out it was almost like hunting three different properties Mm. you know once in a while you get these younger bucks that would hit these areas but you know this valley here was generally you know one corner of this buck's range and then this property or this valley over here would be one corner of this other bucks range. And once in a great while, you get a buck that would bounce back and forth between those two general Mm -hmm. areas, but not, not super common. And then the same, like to the north, there was another Valley. So you never really had like a big block to hunt from. And most of it is row crop and, and alfalfa egg land. So, you know, you're working with that difficulty too, where you're hunting a lot of field edges early in the season. Yeah, you're always like there's always that issue where you know worst the worst place to hunt in the early season which is also your most opportunistic place is a destination food source in an area like that you know when you start blowing deer off a destination food sources early in the season you create nighttime activity like right off the bat so that's a hard thing too where you know that's kind of where cell cameras are nice because you can kind of scope out these more secluded areas. But, you know, the other thing there too, is even having a cell camera out there, you know, camera only picks up what's 20 feet in front of it. And that time of year, there's a lot of food. So those those movements are way less defined again, especially when you're working on a farm that has 300 acres of of alfalfa spread out across it. So it'd be difficult, but I, I definitely put numbers on that stuff you know, that's one of the things I do with my clients and really, you know, c- try to have a camera by every stand location or potential stand location, you know, it might be in a pinch point, 50 yards from there might be on the edge of a food plot, you know, 40 yards the other way, whatever. But so for the most part, you've got a camera in every stand location or for like me, I don't put stands out in that many locations. Cause I, I try to be as mobile as I can. I, most of the time I'm doing a hanging hunt of some sort and there's a couple reasons for that. One is things change so much on that farm. Again, I have very minimal control, so I want to be able to adapt and not have to deal with that stuff. But two, if I if I have everything figured out, but I get in this location and the wind is a little bit different, you know, instead of being like, well, that stand right there is really good for a southwest wind, and then I, I get out there that day and it's more south than southwest, I just set up twenty yards off of where I was gonna set up. Sure. Yeah, so it doesn't eliminate that location. That's it a just, great point. You know, it gives you that flexibility, but yeah, I, with my clients, I grade all my stands. If I place a stand on a plan, I number them, the higher the number, the more pressure I think it's going to put on the property and the camera locations that coincide with the stand locations are the same. So, you know, a, a low number, a number one stand is a stand that I would tell them, you know, you can hunt on a ton of different winds. It's minimally invasive. He's got great access in, great access out. Maybe it's even a box blind or something where you get those more marginal winds, but that's containing your scent a little bit better. You know, that's a, that's a low pressure spot. Same with a camera. It's a spot where you can zip out there at noon on your e-bike and get out of there. Deer don't bed real close to there. You know, ideally, again, you're looking for this wind direction that pretty much guarantees the deer aren't going to be super close. That's a camera you can check a lot. Sure. And the, the layer two is kind of the same. Those like number five, number eight stands. Those are the ones where, you know, now maybe you're, you're in that trail, 10 yards into the woods instead of on the edge, because a lot of times those mature bucks, they like to linger in that cover. Maybe they circled okay. more downwind before they pop into that plot. And that's that trail that cuts them off. Maybe it's that pinch point where that, that tree is down in the woods or that washout pushes those deer up that hill a little bit sooner that's but it but it's still a little bit harder to get in and get out of there. That's a little bit higher number stand. And then the highest numbered ones are those ones that are close to bedding. They're you know, they're on that scrape that's between those two real thick bedding areas where you know if you go in there there's going to be deer there. So that's a matter of if I'm going in there to check that camera, it's because I'm going in there to to hunt that morning. I'm going in there at night when I know deer are not going to be in there. And then I'm going to stay in there and hopefully kill a buck because I don't want him to come in there and know that I was there anyways. So if you're going to go in there, make it worthwhile, but those are the higher numbered ones for sure.
1: Right. Okay. So while we have a, yeah, while we have a short, short, short break here, cause I feel like we're going to talk forever. Tom, why don't you introduce yourself real quick?
0: Sure. My name is Thomas Milzna. Uh, I'm the owner of the untamed ambition, which is a, hunter and habitat development company so i'm primarily consulting but i also have the uh whitetail ambition coaching program which is more geared towards guys that are just trying to take their hunting to the next level but they don't necessarily own a property so again back to the habits then habitat mindset is you know, if there's a will there's a way sort of situation there's always yeah. like i always feel like there's always something more that can be done to get one step ahead of these deer in this chess match. And if I can sit down with someone, you know, it it starts on all levels from the new hunter where they need a lot more guidance, or they're just looking for that mentorship type of relationship up to the guys that are just trying to take it to the next level and want to sit down and look at a map and bounce ideas off of someone and then go through like this process and this, this, uh, just more of a strategic strategic mm-hmm. approach to their situation and trying to create solutions and, and create a good plan going forward. So yeah. that's what I do.
1: All right. Awesome. And you're based out of like Western Wisconsin. Correct. Yeah.
0: Correct. Okay. Yep. Perfect. I guess I, I didn't, uh, maybe you don't even know, but for the last 10 years, I actually worked for a trail camera company. Um, so I had, I have a background in wildlife biology, and then I spent the next 10 years working for a trail camera company. So I've, I've gotten to see, you know, the wildlife research side of things from a lot of different perspectives. And, you know, it it all kind of evolved from my love for hunting and just being outdoors to begin with. So that's kind of why, you know, if I go off on tangents about stuff, it's because I've just fallen into this habit of trying to thoroughly explain everything all the time, because I've, again, I deal with, I deal with hunters on all sorts of different levels and, you know, I just, I like to have good, genuine conversations and, you know, at the end of the day, there's really not much about whitetail hunting that you can say that hasn't been said before. Right. So my, my big thing is I'm just always trying to make sure I say something so that someone can take it and apply it to their situation. Yeah. Try to give them enough detail where they can utilize it instead of just being like, yeah, you know if you want to kill that deer, all you have to do is get between where he's feeding and where he's bedding. That's pretty, <laughs> pretty textbook, right?
1: <laughs> right. Plenty yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And that was uh one thing, Aaron Warbritton, uh, hunting public when he was on here, I asked him about a few tips and he goes, man, it's so, so situational. Everything in yeah. the deer woods is so situational based on, you know, are you hunting hill country? Are you hunting swamps? Are you hunting urban areas? Are you hunting, 1100 acre dairy farms where there's only you know 100 acres of woods like what's the other pressure like there's so many different scenarios so like so many of whether people say it or not so many of like the the tips and tactics that people provide are generalities and then you need to adapt them to your specific scenario
0: yeah right. and well that's the thing or you know the sad thing too is there's a it's good and it's bad there's just a ton of content there's a ton of people out there talking about this stuff, which is great. Again, like I think we were talking about this before we hit record, but you know, this, like the podcasting thing, these virtual calls are really like the modern era of like hunting chatter, like Mm -hmm. your your camp talk and whatnot, because we all have these crazy busy lives these days and it's not the same. You know, that's why I really enjoy Western hunting trips is because you disconnect from everything. You're forced to pull out, of your life and focus on hunting. And every night is you get back to camp. And if you're there with other people, you're talking strategy, you're trying to figure out the best plan for the next day. Right. And now, you know, what we do with whitetail hunting is it's an advantage and it's a disadvantage, I think. You know, the advantage is you're not getting so burnt out physically and mentally. You hunt a couple days, you go, you know, pull a couple cards, go back home, regroup, revisit the intel, and try and come up with a new plan. But We don't have that camaraderie on, you know, that level right after the hunt, you know, that, that high Mm -hmm. you come off of from the hunt when you have one of those crazy nights and you're just like, who can I tell about this? Yeah, (laughs) Like, who who can I call right now? that's going to understand because most people are just like, you know, you know, the non hunting community, the people that are not anti hunting, just the people that don't hunt, right. They know what it is, but they don't understand it. Like my wife, you know, she accepts it for what it is, but she doesn't (laughs) understand it. If I go home and tell her about a crazy night, she'd be like, did you kill anything?
1: Right. Yeah. That's my you wife too. Is your tag full? Is your yeah. tag
0: full? So you don't have to leave next time, you know? But <laughs> yep. so that, that's why I, I do enjoy, I enjoy these conversations. And, and like I said, I, I, I kind of just find myself over explaining things because it's just, it's easy for me to talk about deer. It's yeah. Like basically my whole life. So
1: yeah. Well, but I just, appreciate don't it. Don't be afraid to yeah. cut
0: me off. I don't know if you have <laughs> uh, hold on from the background.
1: No, I love it when I don't have to talk much on the podcast. Every now and then I'll do a solo podcast because my my whole objective is like, why would I invite somebody onto the podcast and then talk more than them? That's not, <laughs>
0: I'm, not yeah, no. <laughs> I'm not interested
1: in that. And in uh, the people who are listening to this podcast right now, uh, they hear me talk all, all the time, right? So I want a different perspective. I want new perspectives. And, and if I have something, the thing that I love about podcast is if I have something to say, should I can record a podcast, a 30 minute podcast after this one and I can just yeah. post it whenever I feel like it. So
0: yeah. I try yeah, to, cool. I try
1: to include all, all my stuff um, in, in the podcast, I try to sneak it in, but yeah, I, I enjoy, uh, I enjoy when other people are able to, I don't have to drag the conversation out of them. Yeah. <laughs> so I <laughs> can tell talk- this podcast is not going to be that.
0: Let's uh, let's, you said something there that I want to touch on just a little bit, the whole house, every situation's, different, right? It's situational. So it's hard to explain strategies in any one specific way. Right. Sure. So that's like a big thing for me. And again, you know, I've, I grew up in one situation, but I've never had a situation where it was like a gimme. And that's, you know, it's hard for some people to understand that too. Even a lot of the local guys until I actually went Full time with consulting and started talking more about deer like everyone just assumes that i had access to hunt this crazy farm right just like phenomenal farm you know we all we all do the same thing if a guy shoots a couple of big deer a few years in a row what are you thinking right away redneck blind acres of switchgrass
1: right premium room trails wow. no one else exactly. Likes it. yep exactly. Yeah, exactly he has all the time in the world what does he even do for work how much money does he make? This is daddy's money. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. So
0: like I, and the other thing is I, I don't really like to talk about myself. I love talking about deer. So I, I love telling stories about these deer, but I hate being like, listen to me and I'll teach you something. But now I put myself in a situation where I'm trying to teach people as much as I can, because I yeah. love seeing people kill big deer. I just love it. And I love seeing people put time in to kill big deer. Yeah. And that's, the guaranteed thing is if you put time in, you're going to get something back. And, the, and this is really a time investment type of game. So you either invest your time and figure things out, learn from your mistakes and, and move forward from that, or you pay someone to invest their time and help you set up your property and you invest right. your time by investing in the habitat improvements and creating one of those properties. But there's just a lot of ways to do it. And there's a lot of different situations and I've never had a situation where it was like, if I hunt that stand every year, I'm going to kill a deer. I've, every single year, I've had to relearn the farm. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never, you know, I said I hunt mobile. I've never killed two deer out of the same general area on that entire farm. So mm-hmm. I've never killed a deer that yeah. I passed up in a previous season. In fact, the, yeah, the buck that I'm hoping to cross paths with this year, the one I sent you the video of the other night,
1: yeah. What's, that would what be remain, the first deer. Remain nameless and yeah.
0: undiscussed. Yeah. He's, a, he's a ghost. I mean, he may as well be a ghost until I cross paths with him. But uh, that would be the first deer I've ever actually passed up and had an opportunity to kill the next season.
1: Every mm-hmm. other deer,
0: you know, I've passed up a lot of deer, a lot of good deer trying to, you know, have the opportunity to chase deer at that next level. And they almost all get killed. And a lot of them, you know, I don't feel bad about it because they're great deer for a lot of people to kill. But, yeah. you know, if you if you put in as much time as I have and basically put all your chips in to chase one deer, and then you kill a couple of these deer, it's just like a different, I don't know, it's a, just a different level. And I'm not saying that anyone should strive for that if they don't personally want to, it's just, that's where I'm at. So I'm willing to pass up those opportunities, but. Anyway, yeah. okay. no, I had a, yeah, I had a buddy send me a
1: Snapchat <laughs> last night. Um, he killed a, a nice 10 point. I think he's probably like 135, maybe 140 inches tops. Uh, two years ago on October 12th, um, on a stand on a field edge. And last night he had the exact same thing happen. Another 10 point, but 135 inches came in exact same trail, exact same route came to 20 yards, hit a scrape and he was watching him the whole time. And this guy is a, is a dude who like, first thing with antlers, it dies. Yeah. <laughs> right? He's one of those guys. And, uh, and he said, which is totally
0: cool. I, yes, I totally yeah. respect oh, that
1: too. Like... He sent me a snap and said, that's the first buck I've ever passed in my life. He goes, I, wow. <laughs> I just, I, I can't kill giants if I shoot these guys. And he yeah. goes, I well, don't want my hunt to be over yet.
0: So <laughs> here's the, here's another big thing with that. You know, what I say, I find myself saying this very frequently these days is you can't kill great deer if you kill good deer. Right. Right. Basically what you just said there. Yeah. But the big thing there is, you know, beyond just the obvious of, obviously if I kill this deer, he doesn't have another year to express his potential. But when you get in the mentality of passing up a certain caliber of deer, any caliber of deer, then you get... opportunity to actually observe these deer and that's when you start to really learn stuff and we've all been there i mean for the longest time it's like i was in the same boat oh that has antlers i'm going to take that shot and for me i don't know about you but for me it doesn't matter if i'm going to shoot that doe or if i'm if my target buck that i've been after for three years i have the first visual on as soon as i see that animal that i plan on killing i'm just in this like kill mode where it's just focus on making the shot, like every movement, every breath, I'm just thinking about like, okay, like I'm part of this tree. I'm part of my surroundings right now. <laughs> I'm not moving until I have the opportunity you're just controlling your breathing, just focusing on that one little spot behind the shoulder, that deer's attention's away from you, making the shot. When you mentally pass up these deer and instead of like, oh, should I shoot them, should I not, having this internal battle of whether you made the right decision or not, You just let it be like, nope, that's not a deer I want to kill. I'm just going to watch him. Then you really start to learn stuff about these deer. And it starts out with those ones and Mm -hmm. two-year-olds. Goes up to the three-year-old. You start to watch them a little bit, you know, and obviously you start killing, you kill a handful of three-year-olds. There's a lot of stud three-year-olds out there. So a lot of those are really good deer for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And again, if you're one of those guys that only has a weekend or two to hunt, and, and you're happy with that go out and kill one that's totally cool it's uh, it's all a personal choice right right but then you pass those up and maybe you get to where you're, you're passing up four-year-olds then you get to watch these deer and just like the, the difference between a mature buck and a young buck walking through the woods is, is is so dramatically different but you most people don't get that opportunity to observe that right you see that deer and it's like i'm going to kill it or i'm not and, and, and that moments, you know, those moments that we spend so much time working for pass so quickly when you're in the woods. So passing up bucks, passing up those good deer and giving yourself an opportunity to observe them. You just have some crazy experiences in the woods yeah. when you get to that point. And that's kind of, you know, I'm honestly, not that's that how it's evolved yet. for me, where you start passing <laughs> up more deer where you're just like, okay, now I am set on that deer and I'm willing to eat my tag if I have a good right. season. So,
1: yeah, no, I'm not at that point yet. <laughs> no, <laughs> and that, like, like I
0: said, that's totally cool. <laughs>
1: right. I missed, uh, yeah, last year I missed a, a really, what I'm assuming is a pretty nice three and a half year old. Um, and I haven't got a picture of them yet, but, um, a bunch of last year, the problem. Yeah. And this goes a little bit back into the story of our property. I've had it for three years. Um, and last year was really my first year two. We've had it for three years, three seasons. The first season, I just really tried to learn the property. There was not a whole lot. Like, I just sat a new tree every single night and just like every night I went out and just moved all around this property. Had a great chance at a really, really nice buck. Um, Wasn't able to get a shot off. Um, and then the rest of the season never, and I had one other really nice nine point come through, but I just couldn't get a shot at him either. Um, just learning the area, right. You know, sitting in trees and not trimming lanes and not understanding how the deer use the property. So encounters, but no, no success. Second year, um, went in and and dropped a bunch of cameras, um, where I had, and I got, was able to do a bunch of fault winter scouting, you know, um, in the off season, And ended up setting up and on a really nice pinch that I was like banking on for the rut just kind of works its way through this valley um, Two kind of rock cliffs come together. There's a window that's like 60 yards wide that they if they're going from west to east, they're either coming through here or they're walking through a wide open four wheel trail. So most likely they're using this gap, um, this wooded gap. So I had that nice three and a half year old come through and it was like November 12th or something like that. So I was like, yeah, you're dead. And I just <laughs> missed him. I missed him at 27 yards. I don't like just shot right over his back. Um, any anyway. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really hoping he turns back up. He turned up on October 23rd last year. Um,
0: did you have any pictures after season to know yes. he survived? Yep. You yeah. So he's kid.
1: alive. Yeah. All. Yeah. I actually did a huge like data dump on my brain. Uh, two days ago with all of my old trail cameras. I went through all the old photos, deleted everything except for these, for bucks, for good, except for good bucks on the property. And I still really started lining up a bunch of this data. And I have eight eight bucks that are between like 130 and 160 inches on the property that are using the property. Yeah. Yeah. Two of them. Two of them are are certainly live across the road because I only got them on one trail that comes into the property and out of the property. Um, And they're always going to the other side of the road in the morning at like you know 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. They're going to the other side of the road. But other than that, the rest of them are living either on our property or on the neighboring properties. So anyway, um, yeah, so this year I'm really hoping with I've, I've outlined a plan um i've have this whole week off next two weeks two weeks out yeah two weeks out which is october 25th to the 29th i have some great mock scrapes set up that are already getting hit um one of them's already getting hit by two two good one's a giant eight point probably running that 130 to 140 range and then one's um a buck i call blitz um because he's got uh split brow tines so okay. both both sides are are broken. He's a really nice mature 10 point. Had him at 10 yards last year and couldn't couldn't get a shot off at him. <laughs> I mean, literally I was climbing up and I, so I apologize to the podcast listeners cuz I've told this story so many times, but I was literally we have like rock boulder fields on our on our property which are awesome for my entry and exit routes cuz the deer okay. don't like use them at all really. Yep. Yeah. Um so I was climbing up one of these boulder fields to get to the top of this this ridge where I had a stand. So I use this, I use this, uh, I come in on the backside of it, climb up this boulder field. I have a tree stand that's like 10 yards off the top of this ridge. Um, So I can just sneak in there, get up and I can oversee everything and I can sneak out really nice entry and exit. And I get up to the top of this boulder ridge and I got the last, uh, the last hop to the top. I actually have to like pull myself up. So I set my bow up there, put my hands up there and I peek over the top. And there he is at 10 yards looking at me. And I'm like, I'm below eye level at him. I'm looking up at this giant 10 point, like, holy shit.
0: So he must've heard, did he hear you? You think he heard you coming up?
1: Yeah. Yeah. He heard me coming up because it's, it's a boulder field, but it's mixed in with like pockets of leaves. So I'm sure he thought like I was a coon or a possum, or maybe even another deer kind of working through this squirrely area. Um, but yeah, I popped up and he had a, you know, it was, um. And, and it's funny because when he spooked, he ran and stood right in front of one of my trail cameras for five minutes. And I got, you know, <laughs> 10 videos of him just sitting there. He's just teasing at you.
0: He's just yeah. looking, making sure that you knew it was him that was
1: there. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And he was, he was in there with three other bucks and a hot dough. Um, so they were all just burning rubber up there. Um, and what time of day was rough. that? What's that?
0: What time of day was that?
1: I got, so that was, I dropped my kids off at daycare. And then shot down to our property. That was at 9 a.m. Okay. So um, yeah, I knew I was late. And even if I would have got there early, hindsight, I wouldn't have mattered anyway because the wind in that stand, for whatever reason, it even when it's, uh, it's set up for a north wind, so the north wind's in my face, I pop up over that ridge. The wind swirls in that little ridge in the valley right there and it comes up and it's almost always south. So every time I sat in that tree stand, it was always south. So I would have been, I was, when I was on that cliff edge, it was still like blowing. It was more so blowing west. You know, when you look at Wonderground, it says straight north. But then when I'm standing there, it's west. So I'm good. And then after he busted out, I was like, well, there's a hot doe in here. Maybe another buck will cycle through here, you know, chasing the doe or whatever. So I'm going to sit here for another couple hours anyway. Um, and I hopped in the stand and the second I got in there, I hit my wind checkers, just blowing straight out in front of me. I'm like, what the hell is this?
0: Anyway, yeah, that's all that. No, I've been there before. Yeah. That was actually kind of what I experienced on that public land last night. I got all the way back in the spot where there's this point that came out, had really good buck bedding. It was just real thick pocket in there. And the wind was coming straight out of the North. When I got over there, it was almost going directly West. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, it's like the worst wind I could have had for that. So I ended up peeling back out of there. And I just set up on this field edge, just to kind of to see what was going on on the property. Yeah, and yeah no, I, I get it. It's, but that's huge though. I mean, that's one of the big things you have to learn some of those areas, you know, sometimes right. it can be a matter of moving that stand 20 yards mm-hmm. and that wind is completely different.
1: So I, so. yeah, so I have, so this year I have moved that stand about 50 yards Northeast And I've sat in it with a Northwest wind um, over the summer. And I had a, I had a good Northwest wind, which is what I need in that, in that area, which is, which times well with cold fronts and all that. But enough about that. I want to get into the pre-rut stuff. So this episode is going to air on October 18th or 19th. um, And I want people to be able to, I want to talk about what's going to occur between October 20th and the 31st so let's talk about the pre-rut let's talk about scrapes let's talk about you know early pushes early chasing let's talk about that yeah i mean this that time of year that time window that you're talking about is
0: it's one of my favorite times to hunt i mean that's when you get those crazy nights some of the most action i i actually really have a love hate relationship with the rut and i think it's Mostly because again, the property that I hunt has so much pressure. And by that time of the year, there's just been a lot of commotion, you know, all the crops are hundred percent off and these deer, it's just, it's so hit or miss, but it's all, I mean, it's, it's the same in every area where once you hit that full on rut phase, you're either in it or you're not. And it just depends right. on how your property lays and what's going on. And, you know, did those deer, deer get pushed off? So this next phase this pre-rut phase. You know, they kind of, they overlap a ton, but, you know, I guess my, just to be clear, like when I'm talking pre-rut, I'm talking like now we're in heavy seeking phase, right? These bucks are, they're a lot more active. You know, the mornings Mm -hmm. get better and better as the month goes on, you know, and that that 20th, usually around the 20th and on is when I start, you know, unless I have real good intel, that's when I start starting thinking about more of those morning sits because you get those bucks that are coming back later to bed and they're, they're covering a lot more ground at night. They're still hitting scrapes. You know, most of those scrapes have already opened up, but now they won't touch them for a little bit. And then they start hitting them again because they're kind of bouncing around and, and, and seeing what's going on. You know, most of these bucks that I'm watching, they shift a little bit. So your summer bucks have shifted, you know, some of them they shift where you get more of their range in the fall and less of their range in the summer, but you see them frequently, but some are right. like the buck that I'm after. I mean, he just showed up. I had that, that video that one night at the end of September and then nothing for a couple of weeks. And I just got a picture of him the other day, but I don't really expect him to be a, a regular on the property until the end of the month. And that's that time frame, that 20th to the 31st. And, you know, it just gets better and better as the month goes on. But the big thing there is these bucks are really predictable around that time. Because the, the mature bucks, especially, you know, I kind of generalizing when I say bucks, but specifically the mature bucks. And this is something that I think everyone, you know, if you, if you don't already have a good plan, you, know, you and I talked about our target windows that we've already kind of looked at the data, but you know, I guess to everyone listening to this, if you don't have a plan in place, you're just kind of wondering, you know, what, what are the best days gonna to be to hunt this fall? Or, you know, when should I take vacation? This is a very predictable time for mature bucks. Those, those first few days of like heavy rut activity before they actually get locked out. Right. And, you know, these, I've always had the theory that mature bucks kind of know where those does are that come into heat first. And it, and it makes sense, right? They, they've been around, they've been playing this game for more years than these young bucks that are just running around all crazy, like teenage boys. But then these older bucks, you know, they kind of know if I move into this area around this time, kind of, you know, they start bedding a little bit closer to these doe bedding areas. They start shadowing some of these does. They start checking some of these scrapes a little bit more frequently. Now they're there. They know those does are going to come into heat. So that first round from my experience is way more predictable. Once they breed that first doe or first couple of does in that group, then that's when you get that more sporadic rut activity. But You know, from the 20th to the 31st, I've been able to look back over the years and see a ton of consistency with mature bucks. I mean, I can, I could probably right off the top of my head, talk about five or six different bucks where I had two to three, maybe even four consecutive years of pictures of these bucks in this three to five day window in the same exact spot on the farm. And that's kind of how I evolved to, to hunt them then obviously is. You know, I I actually really love early season hunting when there's less people in the woods and, and you have a little bit more time. But my plan B is always these bucks that come in after the shift. They start shadowing these does, which is what I'm after this year. And you look at that, look at the, your dates on the trail camera, and then plan your vacation for that. And then you're still kind of looking for those key weather days of you know the colder fronts, the wind shifts, and everything. But all this stuff makes even more sense now because MSU actually just released a study a couple of years ago about the specific day that a doe comes into estrus being related to a certain gene. So they pass that gene on to their offspring. So if, if you have a spot on your property, you know, you said the 26th or so is, a, is always a good day for you. Yeah, everyone yeah, you last to. Last year,
1: based on cameras last year, the 23rd and 24th were, the best days of the whole year for camera pictures. Like I had more mature deer on those two days than any other day.
0: So, you know, there's, there's obviously a doe in that area that's pulling those bucks in at that point in the season. And then, you know, that's genetically passed on. So as long as that whole family doesn't get eradicated, there should always be a doe in that area coming into estrus around that time, that same two to three day window so you're getting those bucks there on that same time every single year so they're very predictable i mean then it really just comes down to again what what the pressure is doing on the property how that's altered behavior and you know you start putting too much pressure even on the does then they stop using certain food sources during the day and they shift their routines a little bit too and then obviously that can affect those bucks when they're in the area but you know that that's kind of the name of the game you're once we get through October, you know, there's gonna be kind of that gray area. You know, I'd say that right now through the 20th, even, you know, for me, you know, it, it varies obviously wherever you're at in the Midwest. But for me, I'd say like the 15th through the 20th, the 23rd or so, you're still kind of in that area where those bucks are still kind of on their own routine, their own movement, they're betting in certain areas. And then all of a sudden it's like you hit this switch and that 23rd, 24th, 25th. Now all of a sudden, that's when you start seeing these bucks hit, come out in these fields at night and run these does around bumping all these does all over the place. And then they start shadowing these does. Now you start seeing them You know they're they're hitting every scrape in one night. And then two, three days later, they're back through, they're hitting every scrape in in that night again. You know, those they kind of turn on that switch and they start, they're just checking. They're checking all around that ridge top, every scrape they can. And that's you know, my, my trail camera strategy at that time of year is not cameras specifically over scrapes, but cameras by those primary doe feeding areas. And if, if there is one, the holy grail of that setup is having a community scrape next to one of those doe bedding areas, doe feeding areas. You know, those bucks, the first thing they do when they roll into that area is they go check that community scrape because those doughs are using that community scrape almost daily. And right away, I mean, they basically get to taste every dough that's in the area. And they just, yeah, can you, know, you know,
1: can you describe a community scrape? Sure. Yeah. On the last podcast for everyone listening, if you didn't catch the last one with Jake Bush, he described them as hub hub scrapes, but I think it's important to revisit this because this, that I was, someone was, someone told me about this years ago like six, seven, eight years ago. And I never really paid attention to it. And then one year I dropped a camera on a scrape that was, that I found that was active in like February. Like I was like, holy cow, this thing's like open. This is odd, you know? And then I was like, oh, this must be what that guy was talking about. And I dropped the camera on that in early September and I was getting bucks on it like regularly, you know, at least one good buck a week um, in September. And so it was one yeah. of those things that kind of blew my mind and really turned me on to finding community scrapes. So go ahead.
0: Yeah. Community scrapes are, you know, they're, I think they're the best place to have a camera if you're looking for inventory, you know, where, where I hunt, we're in the CWD area. So that you can't bait with anything, can't have mineralics or anything out like that. And even so I. You know, mineral lick in the summertime gives you pretty good intel, but a mineral lick in the fall doesn't give you much for mature buck activity usually, but it'll hold those in the area. So it can be deceiving too, but a community scrape, you know, so if you're looking for a community scrape, the stereotypical spot you're gonna find a community scrape is where you have a transition area where a couple habitat types meet and you have a couple edges that meet, you know, fence line going into that corner, the back corner of the field, obviously the fence line is separating the woods from the field in, in a lot of situations or, you know, that logging road where you have a few trails that come together. But the big thing is you're going to know it's a community scrape or what I refer to as a community scrape but that you refer to as a hub scrape. Uh, they're always significantly bigger. You know, you're going to find an apple tree that has a scrape the size of a hood of a car underneath it. And there's five licking branches over it. You know, that's for sure a community scrape they're open all year round. Like you said, the does use them as much or more than the bucks. But the big difference is a lot of times you'll see those more territorial scrapes and they don't have any licking branches and you know, that buck just tore up the ground and, and marked his territory as he was working his way down, maybe there's another buck that he could see maybe something else is going on. He was just doing that, you know, maybe he a tree. Then you get a few more closer to those buck bedding areas that actually have a licking branch, but they're still, you know, they're still only like a 24 inch diameter scrape. They're not anything crazy. Then you get out to those field edges though. And again, a lot of times these community scrapes will have two or three different licking branches, just depending on the type of tree that they're under, but they're always significantly bigger scrapes and they get used a ton. And again, that's that's where I really like to have those cameras, especially a cell camera, because you know, like last year, this particular buck that I'm after, I moved a camera, actually moved that camera at like three o'clock in the afternoon one day next to this community scrape. It was it wasn't directly over the community scrape because it wasn't this community scrape actually ended up moving a little bit over the years, ended up being underneath like a down tree that was in the edge of the field. So I couldn't get a camera right. You know where i wanted it and a big thing here too is don't ever put a camera directly over a scrape because the last thing you want is that deer a buck to come in looking for does work that scrape and look up and have this camera looking him right in the face you know, that's, a, <laughs> that's a great way to only get one picture or one photo sequence of a mature buck and then never again right if he sees that camera there he's gone like he's probably still in the area but he's not going to be on that scrape again right and the intel that you get is huge so this camera was off the scrape it was kind of there's actually a very uh, distinct trail that came out of the woods and then 10 feet around the corner was the a scrape. So I put it up high, pointed it straight down on this trail because I was only trying to target like literally a five foot area. And the first picture I had on it of a deer was at three o'clock the next morning of this buck. I went out that night, that, so three o'clock in the morning or so I got a picture of that deer. I went out that afternoon, hunted that, that doe feeding area. And I had that buck in bow range two different times. And I, I ended up watching him for like probably 30 minutes. And i am actually, it, you know, back to that internal debate, whether you should shoot that deer or not, I saw, I was like, first saw him like, oh, I know that deer, I'm going to kill that deer. And then I saw him again and I was like, oh man, he's a really good looking four-year-old. It's like, uh oh. there's another buck that I was actually after that I had already had two encounters with that season. He was like a six-year-old deer. And I was like, oh, I'm just, okay. I'm just going to commit to not shooting this deer. And then I had another opportunity and then a coyote ended up coming through and clearing the field off. So I didn't have to overthink it anymore, but that all <laughs> led or that all came from monitoring that community scrape, knowing that when those bucks come into that area, they hit that community scrape. So, if you know, again, I mean, it all, a lot of this too, you know, it's never as simple as that. So here I'm going to go on another over. over explaining tangent right but it's never as simple as that and i want people i just want people to understand you know yes you can put a camera over the scrape and you're probably gonna get pictures of a buck but if that's as far as your plan goes you know where do you go on where do you go from there right at that point in time you should already know and you know i say should and i mean that as like best case scenario like you have the highest chance of killing that deer when you get a picture of him, if you know all these things I'm going to talk about. And that would be one, do you know where that buck is bedding when he is in the area, given any specific wind direction? And if you are in two, I guess would be, do you have a stand location picked out and do, does the stand location jive with the bedding of that buck? Right? So that was, that's one of the big things that I always try to get people to understand is you want to hunt these areas that are, when they're good for that deer to be there, not when it's just safe for your wind to hunt that area. So do you have that stand location picked out and is that going to work? Is the wind on that stand going to work with the wind that puts in there to begin with, and then again, you know, you know, the minor, the minor things, I throw up air quotes, but you know, those are the the details I should say that are, are going to be the difference. Would be you know then do you know exactly these pinch points that are going to get that deer into bow range that night because obviously just putting yourself in a position where you can observe deer is good it's great right but ultimately you want to harvest that deer so right by knowing all of these things and then you have that camera over that community scrape basically what you're doing right is you're just waiting for that last piece of intel that says now's my chance to go right Again, right. back now to the deer, de- back to the deer detective mindset, right? Or, or like yeah. you're a DEA doing a drug raid. You've been monitoring this dude for months. You're waiting for this one specific night to catch him and all his buddies or whatever it is, right? It all comes down to the timing aspect of right. that point. And now you're in that position. You've got all your ducks in a row. When you know that buck is on the property and that wind matches up, okay, he's going to be here on this wind. That wind works with the stand. I'm going in for the kill
1: game over just right i think that's i think that's a really really important point and something that i catch myself doing still like failing on every now and then which is like you find a new scrape and you're like oh this is a badass scrape like i didn't know this existed like this makes total sense why it's here they're probably betting over there you know and you put a camera on the scrape just for the curiosity sake of it right and then whatever you know a week later two weeks later you go back and you check that camera and you're like oh shit there's a bunch of good deer on here like what's my plan of attack and yeah. you should have had that plan of attack built out the second you like the first when you found the scrape the next thing is okay how can i hunt this where are these deer bedding that are let would likely utilize this area uh what wind can i use and is there a good entry and exit route that plays well with everything, and is this a morning or an evening sit? And yeah, the biggest thing would be that I always try to remember is, is access. How do I get here? How do I get yes. to this part of the farm? Um, and planning all that out right away as a a way of like just in case, like especially if it's cell cam, and all of a sudden you know you set that camera there and there's a good buck there three days later you're not going, Oh man, what did that look like when I was in there? Or like, you know, you're staring at topo and, uh, and satellite maps, imagery maps going, man, I can't remember. Like, can I sit in this tree? Can I sit in that tree? It's just something like you need to figure out right away. And that's like the mock scrapes that I set up this year, all four of them have stand locations within, um, shooting distance. And they've like, when I set the mock scrape up, I also trimmed all my lanes. So I don't have any stands hung. It's all mobile. It's all mobile setup, but I know that the exact trees that I'm going to be sitting in. So even if it is uh, a 3 a.m. hike out into the woods, I know exactly where I'm going.
0: Yeah. Um, And that's huge. That's, that's,
1: I mean, that is the worst thing ever is to not know that you need to be in there in the morning and not know which tree to get into. (laughs) <laughs> you well, know, the worst
0: thing, the worst thing, that's the second worst thing. I agree. That's not great at all. The worst thing is not, not having enough of a plan to, to make a decision to even make a move in there. Right. Sure. Like the indecision just creates missed opportunity all the time. I'm, I'm yeah. guilty of this all the time. You know, I find yeah. myself just standing there like way overthinking, like, should I do this, should I do that, should I do this, should I do that. So I like having a plan where, again, it's it's backed up by the data. It's backed up by your intuition. But then when, again, you get that breadcrumb, you're like, that's it. It's go time. Man, I know exactly right. what I'm doing. And this is my these are yeah. my only options. It's either going to happen like this or it's not going to happen at all. So indecision, yeah. it, like I said, it, it just destroys a lot of opportunities.
1: So the, yeah, I, I agree. And I am, I mean, I have spent, probably I, I think the longest my record is about an hour of staring at three or four trees in an area like should I get in here should I get in here I've I you know I set two sticks on this tree and then I pulled two sticks off that tree and then I go set a stick on this tree you know just back and forth and back and forth anyway um so in the in the 20th to the 31st like that time frame window are you is is the main point of focus scrapes or what it, like, if you could recommend somebody who's maybe they're hunting a property for the, maybe not the first time, but maybe they're a couple of years in, or they have an idea, like where should they spend their time?
0: So I, I probably have a slightly different take on this, but I, I rarely ever hunt scrapes specifically. Right. I, Okay. I frequently find myself hunting areas with scrapes, but I'm not hunting them because of the scrape per se, right? So again, most of these scrapes that I'm trying to monitor are community scrapes, which end up being on the edge of a food source or on the edge of a bedding area. So I'm not there because of the scrape. I'm there because of either the food or the bed. Okay, if That makes sense.
1: Gotcha. So, so like yeah. my
0: big thing and kind of what I was getting at before is you know, every situation is different. But if you approach it with more of a, you know, a strategic plan, a way to kind of break it down while every situation is, is different, you can create consistency with your thought process that helps you be less indecisive and break down these situations where you, you basically eliminate some of these variables that really don't mean anything. Right. Cause I, I, I think we, this happens all the time in this in this industry or the sport, right? There's, there's things that are blown out of proportion that really have no relevance at the end of the day. Like, like really it doesn't matter what camel pattern you wear (laughs) as long as you sit still, you know what I'm saying? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of different things that they're just like, they're there, but they, they may mean nothing. They really don't. It doesn't matter what brand of bow you're shooting as long as the things dialed in and you can make the shot. So, there's a lot of situations there. The same goes with the actual information and all the data. There's a lot of excuses for that buck to come into this area. You know, certain areas have mature buck activity year after year after year. Why is that? Because of the does, because there's that consistency with the does, and also because that area lends for mature bucks to be secure and safe there. It's an area away from pressure, it's got better cover. You know, there's always a reason why. So, I'm moving into these areas. I use the scrapes as Intel, but you know I don't, I don't even know if anymore what the stats are of you know eighty percent of all scrape activities at night, right so yeah. and I see that I mean I, it might even be higher than that. I see that consistently across my cameras that the majority of the scrape activity is at night. so obviously I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I'm going to hunt a deer that's been on that camera primarily between 8 pm and three and a.m in the morning, right. Instead, I'm setting up, and it might only be 20 yards away from that scrape, or it might be 50 yards away from that scrape, or it might be right over that scrape. Because again, he doesn't, he might be hitting that food source, or he might be using that pinch point 10 yards downwind of that food source, or by that doe bedding area, you know, it just depends. Is it morning? Is it evening? He might be using these areas that are just off of that scrape, but he's not necessarily hitting that scrape. Back to what I said before, how the camera only tells you what's going on 20 feet in front of it. So you're going to have a lot of situations where that buck is there and he's just not on that camera. So I'm I'm picking those locations based off of a handful of variables, but you know, at the end of the day, the scrape is kind of my Intel saying that buck is still using that area. He is still checking for does in that area. So scrapes for Intel, not necessarily for hunting. They just a lot of times end up being in the same general area, but I, I would, I would say, most of these spots I end up hunting, I can maybe see the scrape, but I can't shoot the scrape. So it's not like I'm trying to set up a shot where I kill that buck over the scrape.
1: No. And that, and that makes, I guess that makes sense because if you're in a high traffic bed to food pattern, there's very likely to be a scrape there anyway. Right. Correct. I mean, it's just, it, it's a natural addition to the property based on where you set yourself up. If, so when, yeah. If you're, you could also reverse engineer say, that in the sense of if you find a scrape, then this is probably a main food source close by or in this travel area. And then the bedding area is the opposite direction of the food source.
0: That that's exactly what I was just going to say. I mean, the scrape the scrape is there because there's deer activity there. Right. Which, which you just said, you you just basically (laughs) explained that. Right. So that's the big thing. Like you get into an area and there's no scrapes around this time of year, then you just don't have much buck activity for sure. You know, you might, there, there is always a possibility of having a community scrape there that doesn't have bucks hitting it or not very many mature bucks again. So, so it's not like I'm going to go out there and be like, here's a community scrape, I'm going to set up and kill this deer here tonight. I have no idea what deer is using that. And again, those does use those community scrapes as much as the bucks do. But that's again, why I'm looking for Intel off of those scrapes at that, particularly that time of year, because I know when that buck shows up in the area, he knows that all he has to do is go check that community scrape. So here's here's a perfect example of this. Last year, I the, the mature buck that I was after, uh, he ended up getting killed by the neighbor. We called him Niner. So I share a ton of I share a ton of information, as much information as I have, really, with my neighbors about these deer. We're both a lot of times we're both chasing the same deer, but my my policy is the open, honest communication with these neighbors is beneficial to both of us. One, I want them to be excited about killing big, mature bucks, because again, it creates opportunities for me, because if they're not shooting young bucks, I'd rather have a fair match where we're both trying to kill the same caliber of deer than me right. pass up all these young deer and have them kill them. So that's one thing, but two, you learn a ton about deer activity because you only know what you know. You only get pictures of that deer when he's on your property your property is an Island, right? Relatively speaking, that's a small area. There are very few properties that hold bucks year round, you know? So you might have a buck that's there on your property. Most of the fall, that's cool, but I'm curious. I want to know where that buck goes when he leaves in the wintertime, when he leaves in the summer. So I share as much information as I can with my neighbors and we were chasing the same deer, the way our farm lays out and how it was broken up, I had access to hunt this deer basically on the Southern, the Southwest corner of his range and okay. the Northwest corner of his range. And the neighbor had his core area, the neighbor ended up ultimately end up killing this deer. So spoiler alert there, <laughs> but I had two encounters with him and neither of them were ideal situations, but back to the scrape thing. I was running a cell camera. I only run a couple of cell cameras and basically I just bounce them around where I think I'm gonna get the best intel at any given time. And and if like, if I find a specific buck then I kind of choke them down on that deer. You know, I kind of do that with all my cameras. So at that point throughout most of the season I had a cell camera on a community scrape on the very North end of the property, which to give you some sort of visual on that, there was a fence line that came over the hill just a brushy fence line up and over the hill running east to west the tree line ran north to south and about 15 yards off of where that intersection met on the edge of an alfalfa field underneath an apple tree was this big community scrape with probably five or six licking branches on it okay so there's one there and it made perfect sense that alfalfa field is heavy doe feeding i mean i when I went out scouting that in early October, that was the first thing that caught my eye is as you got to the corner of this field, you could see with the naked eye that the alfalfa was mowed down significantly lower than anywhere else in the field. So I followed that in, found this community scrape, and then you go into the woods. There's a short transition area on our property that's, it's actually open MFL, so it's public land, and there's frequently people hunting there, but it's basically a 15 acre wooded draw that you can literally see from one side to the other. You can see from one corner to the other, no matter where you are. It's that open, but there's a ravine that runs down the middle. But on the other side of the fence to the south, there was an overgrown fallow cattle pasture that was just super thick, uh, mostly forbs, not a ton of shrubs, some prickly ash, and a couple down trees in there. So, thick area right off of that. I hunted it a couple nights, and at dark, the does would just pour out of there, a couple young bucks so on and so forth. So that's what led me to put a camera there. And I would get pictures of this buck on that community scrape about once a week or so. The south end of the property, west side, similar type situation. Um, That's one area I actually have a food plot there in a kind of a transition food plot. There's about 10 or 15 yards of woods that separates the food plot from another big alfalfa field. So deer kind of flow through there, but it's only in both of these situations, that alfalfa field, the field edge is only like 80 yards from the road. So it's not, I mean, we're not talking about a good ideal area by any means. Every time I'm on a tree stand in those areas, I'm watching cars, I'm watching Amish buggies, you know, so there's pressure there and frequently those deer wait in the woods in that transition area until it's dark and then they move out into the field. So they're not ideal by any means, but there was another community scrape on the edge of that food plot underneath this big, bushy white Oak branch that hung down into that food plot and it's torn up year round. So I had a cell cam over that and a cell cam on the North end. And I would periodically get those pictures of that buck. I ended up making a move on him a couple of times, kind of in the dead center of that, there's a real thin strip of timber that we owned along that side and the way the land laid it lended for really good bedding on a West wind, which is prevailing. So I just had to really you know, pick the right days to get in there. And I had two encounters with the buck. One morning I had him at 50 yards. couldn't get a shot. He ended up busting me. The wind swirled a little bit. I was down the hill a little bit further than I wanted to be because there's all these deadfalls and I kind of had to commit one way or the other. And then the next time was down a little bit further to the south, um, up on top of the hill. I had him at 30 yards for like five plus minutes after watching him follow a doe into that 30 yard range for like an hour and a half talk about like painstaking and just (laughs) tense moment uh and i could never get a shot he was was just behind there's like three branches in the way you know usually if there's one branch maybe two we can kind of sneak it through there you kind of figure out how your arrow is going up and over around or something but i could i just couldn't get myself to to force that shot and i had to let him walk and So I had some good encounters with him, but the second encounter came directly from cell camera information over community scrapes. And this buck, he was really active for a few days and then he kind of went off the radar. So what does that tell you that time of year? You know, so now, now we're actually talking like the the first week of November. Now he's starting to get locked down. But as soon as he peeled off those does, he went and he checked, he hit both of those community scrapes in the same night. So I, that right away told me that I knew how much he was traveling, which, you know, in some situations, you're not going to get that Intel from that distance. It just worked out that way, but he came off and he hit that community scrape and I was like, Oh, he's free of his dough. Now I'm making a move. So mm-hmm. whether it's the first round where you have that camera set up over that community scrape, you know, and again, most situations, most guys maybe only have that one really good food source that they're trying to key in on. And, you know, they only have one good food plot or one destination food source on their property. That's why it's really critical this time of year to keep pressure off of those food sources. Because you want as much consistency, as much daylight activity from those does as you possibly can. Because when that buck shows up in that area and those does get up to feed an hour before dark, he's a lot more apt to get up and feed an hour before dark when those does get up and start moving around. than if they don't get up until right at dark. So again, it all comes back to the pressure on the property.
1: No, yeah, that makes sense. And, and that's one thing that I've never fully understood is that kind of lockdown phase. Um, it's never, it's never come into play with my hunting strategy because I have been confined by my vacation schedule. So like when yeah. I'm going hunting, I'm going hunting regardless of if they're in a lockdown or not, but um, That that I guess that makes a lot of sense, because if if you have a buck and he's regularly hitting an area and you're able to tell that, then all of a sudden he disappears and he doesn't show up for a week or whatever or a few days. And he's been consistent in that area. And then all of a sudden he comes back. Like you say, he's off that dough and now he's trying to look for another one. Right. So then you can catch him seeking again, you know, and that might be a one day window. That might be a 12 hour window. It might be a three day window. Just depends on when he finds that next dough.
0: exactly and i mean if right. you if you can pinpoint like i said this is where you talked about being confined to certain days of vacation that's why right now you know we're we're talking on wednesday the 13th you said you're dumping this on the 18th ideally mm-hmm. right so by monday if you haven't picked your vacation time whatever it is you know maybe you have to give four days notice maybe you have to give a couple weeks notice if you don't have a plan yet, what you should be doing is going through trail camera pictures from your property. And you know again, every situation is different. Do you have five cameras? Do you have one camera? If you have that camera in a location and you were intentional with that location, so you know it's a pinch point between bedding and food and not just a field edge. The issue with putting a camera on a food source, it tells you that food source, but it doesn't tell you the direction those deer are coming from. So if you don't have well-defined bedding areas, and you don't understand where deer are bedding on specific wind directions on your property, then you don't really know where that deer is coming from when he hits that food source. And that's where I think a lot of people end up hurting their chances, not intentionally, obviously, but you, you have a theory, but you haven't ever really proved that theory on where that buck is bedding. And then you go to access that stand and you might blow that buck out of there while you're accessing the stand without ever knowing it right bucks will bed in weird areas especially in high pressured areas in general or properties that don't have again those well-defined bedding areas if your cover your vegetative cover is relatively consistent throughout the property and there's no geographical features or topographical topographical features that are really highlighted for specific wind directions the buck could bed in how many different areas right
1: right
0: so there's there's a lot again there's always a a longer (laughs) explanation of all these situations, but understanding that, and having that camera in all those locations that you know is this pinch point between point A and point B, go back and look through that trail camera history, that data, and you'll see over the years. I mean, the buck I killed a couple of years ago, I basically went after him after my plan A failed and got killed by the neighbor. I just went, I picked a couple of these pinch points where I consistently have cameras, went through them like, oh, every single year, For the last four consecutive years, I've had a camera in this pinch point. There was an increased amount of mature daylight, mature buck activity between this date range and this date range. And then I shifted over there, moved some cameras around, set up in an observation stand at the beginning of that range. Saw a ton of deer. Next night, I moved in a little bit closer, acquired my target buck. Next morning, I made a move on him, had him at 20 yards, like 15 minutes before legal shooting light, let him walk came back in there a week later and killed him set exact same stand in that many moves. So like you're talking a chess match, literally like four moves, this mm-hmm. deer that I really it wasn't, I, he was on my radar because I knew that he survived the previous season, but I had just a couple of pictures of him crossing one corner of the farm and never really put much into it until I had to went back looked through this data. Yep. This sure. is what I want to do. This is what I'm to do. Boom, boom. I mean, honestly, it was like, it's kind of scary how easy it was. When it was all said <laughs> and done, I'm just like, well, "That works." You know, this comes after a few seasons of like, you know, the season was over, my tail's tucked between my legs, and I'm spending the entire, you know, the remaining 300 days until next year just stewing over a new plan and trying to figure it out. And this one was like, "Boom, boom, boom, done." So, but it all came from that, looking through those trail camera pictures and just understanding or uh, observing that pattern not specifically the same deer, just mature buck activity in general in that area around yeah. that same time. And then picking those days to be hunting that area. So then, you a you can really plan that out.
1: Yeah. So if you were to give advice to somebody who's hunting a piece of public for maybe the second year, the third year, um, and they don't have that historical data to go off of, what would you tell them to, to kind of look for? And and bear in mind, like I was going to say, if they, even if they've been hunting it for seven or eight years, but if you've been hunting it that long, um, you should have an idea of where you see mature deer every year for whatever reason. Right. True, but if you're hunting, if, you, if you're two, three, four years into a property, you don't have a whole lot of data. What should you look for from, you know, that, that 20th to 31st time frame? I mean, the big thing is going to be getting on that property
0: and assessing what the pressure is. And even the food. So, you know, if if we're looking at that, but I'm going to operate under the assumption that this person's been to this chunk of public, right? So, you know, if it isn't, I'm just going to use the example you said, of, this is their first year hunting it. Because if you have a few years, then you're already kind of going into it with, you know, hopefully this like mental list of you're going to check these spots, you move, you know, if they're not here, you move to there, so on and so forth, right? Because the disadvantage of the public versus private, you know, again, my situation wasn't by any means ideal, but I was able to run cameras over the years. Obviously I'm not going to have multiple cameras worth of year round Intel from a chunk of public because it's just not going to work that way. I probably had the same amount of human, random human activity and pressure bouncing around deer, but <laughs> I wasn't able to get that Intel. And that's a big thing, you know, even, even just monitoring the pressure of public, I'm always torn on this. Cause I do this on, on the property that I've hunted forever and when I get to these public chunks and if I do put cameras on, I'm always like, man, can I get away with putting a camera on the parking lot or this like main trail? Because I actually like, I want to know more about what's going on with people on that property than the deer. Right. Because once you start, like, again, you pick up a couple of those breadcrumbs on those deer and they kind of tend to follow the same routine year after year, but the mm-hmm. people thing changes, especially these last couple of years with COVID, how many more people are in the woods yeah, doing whatever, whether out, out hiking or squirrel hunting or whatever. And you know, I you can't, it's easy to get frustrated with it, but it just, it's part of the game. So right. you can't you gotta just have to move past it. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It sucks, but you just have to move past it right away. So it really, the first thing I would do is try to monitor the pressure, but you, you're, if you don't have a specific buck to target, that, that period of time is still going to be good. So I would look for those cold mornings and I would try to hunt more mornings and evenings because, on public specifically, unless you're deep, you know, if you, if you do find a good secluded or overlooked food source, which, you know, I got, we say public, a lot of people have this mentality of hunting like a state forest or something, but there's also a lot of opportunities on open MFL and, and even some of this public land that borders, you know, or has walk-in access or something like that. So once in a while you'll find public land that's basically private land, or maybe has a semi-private food source on it. It all comes down to food creating that movement, but if the food source is pressured, that movement's not going to happen during daylight anyway. So then you need to focus more time catching deer coming off of food and getting into those deeper bedding areas that the deer aren't going to be into until an hour after daylight. And those bucks start moving around a little bit more. And that's where you can kind of key in and and try and get an opportunity there. And, and you're going to find those big community scrapes in those general areas too. those transition zones on, on the edges of those thicker bedding areas. And anytime you get those areas where those habitat types mix, you know, those hard edges, a pine pine stand goes to hardwoods, woods goes to field, you know, more of a prairie setting or something. A lot of times it's in a corner. You get a couple different trails that kind of tend to flow, you know, those edges, deer, edge animals, they flow along those edges. You can flow into that area, you're going to get one of those scrapes. And, you know, if you can get a camera over it, great, but I know if I was a guy in public land, as soon as I saw all the scrapes, first thing I would do is look around and see how many cameras are over it. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it's hard to right. miss a scrape like that. And they are open all the time. So you could have three or four guys come through there over the course of a couple of weeks and that scrape's going to be open. So there's always that possibility.
1: Yeah. Just like- one of the, yeah, I think one of the, one of the tips that I can, now that you say that one of the tips that I can provide on that is if, and this helped me a lot. It, it gained me a shot at a really nice block a couple of years ago. I botched the shot. I did not see a branch that came up from down below. And so oh, when yeah. I, when I, low, I couldn't see it through my sight window, but it was like pretty much four feet off the end of my arrow. And it was just enough to send my arrow off way off course. Um, but I took, I took a huge like scout day. So like essentially I went out there on a Saturday and there was a chunk of of this swamp ground but it had all these like odd like creeks that f- there there were um years and years ago this must have been crop ground because okay. these were all straight line like ditches that were creeks like a drainage
0: or irrigation yeah, like ditch, a drainage, drainage system. Ditch.
1: Yep. Yep. So, and there's tree lines all along these drainage ditches. And then in between it's kind of tall grass. So you have like these, like, I call them, I call them lanes, like lane one, two, three. And then the upper side was this big prairie um, that led to another piece of public from a different entrance route that was always, it's always full of squirrel hunters. Like these guys just freaking love this piece. So I know after... Uh, uh, a month of season all these deer are pushed out of this like pushed out of this section and they're all down in this lower this more southern section which are these lanes and and each lane is really only like 40 50 yards wide but they're they're really thick and all the trees are shrubby they're not trees that you can climb up in really so you're hunting on the ground and you're in tall grass so your your visibility is really only like 20 yards in these lanes yeah um, it's kind of intense. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, and I didn't want to hunt it because there was, there was too much sign in all the lanes. So there was no, and if you sat in one lane, like you could have been, your wind could have been terrible for the other lanes. If you sat in the middle, so you could see, hopefully see everything, then your lanes, you're going to crush one of the other lanes. I, I didn't want to do that. So I wanted to approach it from an edge scenario, um, where I'm hunting the edges and I'm trying to figure this out from my way in. Um, anyway, that, that was kind of my, my thought that's, that's all stuff after the fact. I didn't know any of that when I was walking in. Cause from, from a satellite map, it all, it, you can't see the lanes really can't see a whole lot of that. Um, so what I did though, is I went out and I walked pretty much the whole edge of the whole thing, um, from the swamp to where the trees started kind of tucked into the woods a little bit there and then just walked through. I don't know. I think I spent four hours out there maybe on like um, I bet you it totaled like a hundred and a hundred acres, 110 acres. And I just, I, I kind of made it zigzag through the whole thing really just back and forth and back and forth. And I marked every scrape I found. Okay. And, and, and I marked most of the rubs that I thought were important, but when I was done, marking all the scrapes and, and just taking inventory of the whole area. And what I was looking for was areas that I did not want to walk in like super thick areas that I was like, I don't really want to go in there. Yeah. Um, and what I, what I found, which is what everyone expects now that I explained this is when I, when I looked back at that satellite map, after marking up all the scrapes, you could literally draw a line from the scrapes from the really thick areas through all the the scrapes and play connected dots to the next thick area so it was literally outlining for me the bedding areas like i didn't know they were bedding areas at first but like you look at all the scrapes you play connect the dots with them and on the edge ends of these scrapes were thick bedding areas it's like okay well those are the bedding areas so that's those are the first scrapes that these deer are going to hit when they get up in the evening or when, or maybe you might be able to catch them coming back in the morning. So I knew instantly that, that those were the scrapes that I need to focus my time on. And that's how I ended up, um, kill, getting a shot at one of those deer, um, totally whiffing, but getting a shot at one. So, um, it was a pretty nice 10 point, but that was, that would be my, my tip is if, if you're out there and you're hunting a piece for the first year, or maybe it's, um, maybe your second or third year and you're just not putting it together is take, take a day and take, instead of sitting in a tree for three hours, take a day and, and walk for three hours. It's public ground. Wow. Like you can't, you can't hold yourself to a pressure standard of a, of a privately held single single person hunted piece of private. Cause you never know what squirrel hunter or duck hunter was in there earlier to that day.
0: Yeah. And that that's exactly. I mean, you just have to figure out where those deer are, which is exactly what you did. And they're there because of a reason the pressure pushed them into that area and they're just going to tolerate, you know, every deer will tolerate a certain level of pressure. Right. And that it, mm-hmm. it comes from consistency where if they, like you said, they're used to some form of activity, probably not right in their core area as much, but you can get in there a couple of times before they go anywhere else because they probably at that point they don't have many better options in the general vicinity. Right. So they're there. You know, the analogy that I always try to use when I'm explaining pressure to someone is, you know, visualize a partially deflated air mattress. You know, you look at that just first glance it, it everything looks pretty consistent, but now if you step on one end, you put pressure on that end, where does where does that air go to the other side? I mean, it's just that simple. When you're talking to mature bucks and deer in general, put pressure on them, you just force them into an area where there's no pressure. So it just matters, you know, the, it's a matter of, do they have that area that's still on the public or a huntable area, or are they getting forced out of that area? You know, are you on private land and you're forcing deer to the other side of your property, or are you forcing deer off your property altogether? And that's all up to them, wherever they want to move, wherever the next best cover is, and the next place with less pressure. It's, it's all a pressure game. That That's what makes those deer do what they do in certain areas. Obviously so if pressure why, uh, wasn't effective, they'd be active all the time.
1: Yeah. So then how does how does someone figure figure that out? Is it just time in the woods? I think so. Yeah. I mean okay. there's a lot so there's a lot that comes into it in time,
0: like I said before, your success is going to be directly related to the time that you put into it. Now that that time might be sitting at a computer and staring at a topography map and trying to find, you know, this area is away from this you know makes sense deer move through here and then you get out there and you kind of put those pieces of the puzzle together so you've already kind of gotten yourself up a couple steps ahead before you step foot on the property or that is just hunting that property a lot and making those mistakes and learning but sometimes those mistakes might cost you the season and you have to wait a whole nother year to start playing that game again so as much as you can do off of the property e-scouting run some cameras if, if you can in that area. So you get a couple more pieces of intel to, to prove some of those theories or put those pieces of the puzzle together, talking to other guys in the parking lot. You know, every little bit of information that you can get, you just have to be good at kind of mentally sorting through that information. Again, what's valuable, what's not. If you talk to someone, you know, do they seem credible? Do they see a nice buck Is their version of a nice buck a little fork horn, or is it right truly a nice buck you, you just don't know right so even when you're out in the woods everything's kind of relative right you, you find a big track well is it a big track or is it a big track right you know there's a lot of stuff that yeah. goes on there big rub you know a lot of rubs you get in some of those areas maybe there are a lot of deer numbers but not many mature deer so you're still getting a fair amount of rubs but not as many big rubs so it's just again every every situation is different but At the end of the day, the more time you put in, you know, every situation you want to go into it, always looking for more, Mm -hmm. you know, always go into it with a theory and a plan, but never, unless you actually stick an arrow in that deer and recover that deer, then you don't know that your plan was hundred percent effective. (laughs) (laughs) So there's always those situations where right spot, wrong time, or right time, wrong spot. You know, you're, you're one tree off or you climb that hill and that deer is looking at you eye level. Right. So there's always going to be situations like that. And the biggest piece of advice I give everyone is just try to have a plan, whether you're writing it out or you just have mentally, you have this plan and you go into it. And, you know, I had a plan last night when I went out, I saw one deer. Now I know I move on to the next, the Mm -hmm. next layer of that plan. Yeah. It just kind of confirmed. I, you know, I saw the good sign there last year, but I got in there and there was really not a ton of fresh signs. So did, did something change in the last year or was the area that I scouted just better maybe later in the year, later in November, mm-hmm. maybe they're getting pushed from pressure in the private property. You know, maybe at that point, the private property is putting pressure on and pushing deer back into the public. It was kind of a weird area on the public too. So I don't know, you know, there's just, you got to put the time in and And try and figure it out and just don't ever walk into a situation assuming that you know everything about the situation because again unless you actually put put that deer on the ground then there's always room for improvement right
1: yeah no and i think i think it's good it i mean coming back to a plan is is indecision can quickly escalate to failure right so having a plan and doing your homework and it's been a a very common theme on the podcast the last five six episodes is is do your homework, like do your homework and gain some confidence, get that data. And and if you're a a public land dude and you ain't using trail cameras, get your boots on the ground in February and March and April and figure out that piece at that time so that you can generate a plan for the fall. I know the deer can be in different areas, but for me, what I have found is that the bedding areas that deer use and you jump them out of in that February, March, April timeframe, uh it is it is relative to to specific food sources you know that is that is the number one thing in that time frame is is where is the best food but but barring that the other the other big piece is that um it it those betting areas that you jump them out of i believe them to be like essentially core betting areas because they bet in these areas uh when, cause they're still thick in the winter, they're still yep. cover in the winter. Um, and they're still hard to get to in the winter, um, for, for people. So when the pressure's up, they, they have a spot to go and it's just kind of their last spot. And I feel like I've noticed that on my cameras and hunting, I hunt about 6,000 acres of public ground and I know about 1500 of it pretty well. Um, and I've noticed as pressure picks up, these deer, there is one off the top of my head, one, two, three, four, five bedding areas that these deer will go to that are on public ground. I don't know the bedding areas off of public on the surrounding private, but yeah. there's five and these bedding areas are five to 10 acres in, in size where they bed within that area. I have, I have no idea. I think that depends on the wind and where they feel like laying down, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I do know that my cameras have told me that as pressure picks up throughout season, I don't get a lot of these pictures, a lot of these bucks in these areas in September and August, because they just don't care. But late October, November, like all of a sudden they're there and I'm getting pictures of them. And I, and I don't think it's due to that's where the does are because the does aren't there earlier either. It's just like all these deer get pushed back into these core bedding areas which are the same areas that I find the beds in, in February, March, and April. So like, there's clearly a correlation with the piece that I hunt. I'm not saying that that's the exact same, but I I would imagine if you're one of those public land hunter guys, and you're using the excuse of, I don't run trail cameras, then put boots on the ground and figure out how you're going to approach that with the bedding areas that you find in February, March, and April.
0: Yes. No, I completely agree. Cause again, it all comes back to the pressure all the pressure right and, and you yeah. hit the nail on the head the, the biggest thing there is cover the importance of that cover and if you can find that area with the thick cover cover reduces pressure you know that makes those deer feel right. secure so there, there's two things there's only two things that everything comes back to If you can name anything else beyond it i'm all ears but as far as i can tell there's only two things that reduce pressure for deer and that's cover and consistency so Again, if there's consistent activity in an area, those deer will adapt to it. You know, that's where you get those parking lot bucks that bed and they watch the parking lot. They know that every single day there's people there, but they also know that if they bed in that spot, they can slip away whenever they want. Because ultimately the only thing that is required for a buck bedding area is a place where he can bed and get away and survive, right? So they figure these things out. Most of the time they've got some sort of elevation advantage. They've got the wind at their back. They can see around them, they can smell around them, they can hear around them. You know, They bed there for a reason because they have an advantage and it keeps them alive. So they assess these risks the same way they do anything else. Can I bed here and get away if a coyote comes through the area? Can I bed here and get away if a person steps off that trail and pops into my bubble? So cover and consistency are what keep pressure down on deer. Same on private property versus public property. You find those areas on the public land that have enough cover to create security. Cover reduces noise, it reduces wind movement, it reduces sight on those deer. They can't see as much. They can't smell as much. They can't hear as much. That keeps the pressure down on them, but it also makes them secure. I mean, the same side, you know, inversely predators that move through there can't smell them as well. You know, that's why does have fawns in areas with extremely high stem counts because the scent of that newborn the, the afterbirth does not carry nearly as far in an area with dense vegetation. Predators that are going by downwind, can't pick that fawn up minutes after it's born and come in there and eat it. It's no different why why bucks bed in thick cover. They're hidden, they have the actual cover to conceal them. And nothing can smell them. They also have that sense of security because they don't hear and see and smell everything that's going on around them, not to the same level. They still obviously are very aware of their surroundings, right? But they don't hear. You know, if they're in thick cover, noise doesn't travel nearly as far. You get in those, some of those ridge tops. You know, you said you hunt the ridge tops. So do I. Like I was saying on the public land, quarter of a mile or three quarters of a mile away. I think that trail was. Yeah, it was three quarters of a mile, it was just shy of a mile. But the wind was coming hard out of the north the other night. People walking down that trail talking loudly, but you know, loud enough that I could hear them um, all the way on the other end of that ridge. So, if there was more mm-hmm. cover, you're down over the hill. You're down in those swamps. Less air movement, air, you know, that air movement is what carries that noise most times. So it keeps the pressure down on those deer. They feel a lot more secure and that's why they like to be there, but every situation is different and it's all back to that certain level of pressure, whether it's public land or private land, a certain level of pressure pushes those deer into the areas where there's less pressure and you just have to figure that out, but you know, the sign tells you all that stuff and what you did is genius i mean that's what most guys should be doing it's just a matter of whether you cover enough ground to actually get a big picture like you did you know it's easy to get out in public land like that and be like oh here's a couple scrapes there's thick cover that's definitely where they're bedding but you kept on going you went further and you start looking at you and you identified two bedding areas and scrapes in between so essentially you identify a travel corridor right So the next the next step of that process is figuring out when those deer use that travel corridor Mm-hmm. And, you know, or when they use those bedding locations. So my, like my foundation of the strategic planning that I do, whether I'm setting up a property or coaching someone through a thought process like this comes down to four key elements. And this goes back to trying to eliminate variables and simplify your, def- your decision-making process. And I, I run through this the same way every single time. It doesn't really matter which order you run through them when you're trying to create this plan or this thought process. But those four key elements are wind, pressure, food, and timing. So you can start with any of those things. Right now we're talking about pressure. So we'll start with pressure, right? So we're talking, what's the pressure in that area? That pressure is gonna dictate the general area of those deer are bedding. And then the next thing is food. And that also comes into play, right? Your does, unless there's a ton of pressure, the does are always gonna bed closest to the food source. And then your bucks bed a couple layers deeper than that again, when they're feeding and where they're feeding is a lot, you know, it's related to pressure as far as when they're feeding those areas, when it's huntable, because like we said before, obviously they'll travel and feed in areas in the middle of the night that are not huntable or just areas that they're not going to visit during the daytime. So pressure, food, and then timing, you know, what, what's the best time of year to be there or what time do you have to work with and where are those deer during that specific time of the year and then the wind really wind is the first thing you should always think of. It's that, you know, it's going to really dictate whether you can actually carry out any plan you have in place, or if that's actually a good plan to begin with. So wind is the first thing. Wind is king. You always want to pay attention to the wind first. Wind's going to really start to narrow down areas where those bucks are betting, and it's all based on cover. So the wind and pressure go hand in hand, but wind ultimately dictates that. A buck's going to put his back to some form of cover, whether it's the military crest of a hill, if you're in hill country, or it's the edge of a swamp, you know, maybe it's a fence row out in Kansas, right? They're going to put their wind, the wind to their back and their back to cover as much as they can, and then sight in front of them. So when you're looking at hill country, or again, you're looking at, you know, maybe a swamp with a couple elevated islands in it, or just a thicker edge, a narrow Edge of cover or certain areas, right? Distinguishable lines of cover in one way, shape, or form. You can kind of start to narrow down. That buck's gonna bed with his wind to the wind to his back in that general area. And again, pressure is gonna play right into that. Then the other thing with pressure is we talk about access and exit, is can you, you know, you now you identify potential area next spot is picking a stand location and can you get to and from that stand location without disturbing deer Mm -hmm. you know not just the deer you're after but are you going to bump deer on the way in that are going to move into that next layer and and kind of screw up the whole system and then you're back to the food right so if you can get to that spot the next thing is food where are those deer going to move that night when they get up to go feed food's going to drive that movement and then again we're back to timing again so what is the time of the year that that's gonna be beneficial? So if you're playing, you know, if you're hunting a consistent piece year after year, you start to understand, well, I know that this area is better early in the season. Like you were saying, Mm -hmm. the bucks aren't aren't even in that spot until later in the season. So where are they early in the season? They're, you know, closer to a better food source, most likely, and just not in so much cover, but you have to figure that out because timing is everything. And if you don't know the timing, then you're off. And that can be a matter of by days or by weeks, you know, and and ultimately, you know, it's kind of what we're talking about right now is just that specific timing the 20th through the 31st. So what are they doing during that time of the year And you get out there? But, you know, even that time of the year, you still, if you can, you should still be playing those, you know, best case weather scenarios. So, you know, even if you do have a vacation, if you're on a vacation, in that specific time frame, what I would do is try and get some scouting in, you know, so maybe get in there right away and try and figure some stuff out if you don't already know, and then pull back a little bit and, and hunt some more observation type stands that maybe you can see that area and, and there's a chance of getting a shot at a deer, but it's not as good, but it's also very low risk. You can get out of there clean so that if that deer doesn't get up from his bed to move until right at dark you're not trying to get out of there in the dark and move past that deer Mm -hmm. once you get better intel or a better weather day where it's going to promote that early movement for sure then you move in into that area because again you're putting pressure on it too so just because you found this area that no one else is hunting you still have to choose your moves wisely because if you get in there on the wrong day on the wrong wind or you don't understand what the wind's actually doing in there then you're just gonna hurt your opportunity right off your own worst enemy Exactly. So you put all that time and all that work in and then you screw it up, which happens frequently, right? We all do it <laughs> again. That's why it comes back to having that plan in place so that you can get in there and be like, Oh, I was a day off. Right. Or, you know, whatever it is, you just understand the mistakes that you're actually making and you don't make them again. That's, mm-hmm. that's ultimately how you get better at anything. It's just accepting and learning from those mistakes and not making them in the future. So you keep track of those things. And that's why I just, over the years, I've just developed that process. Wind pressure, food timing. Like, what's the wind doing? Is that buck even going to be in that area? Okay, if he is in that area, and this wind, where can I hunt him on that wind? And pressure, what's my pressure going to be? Can I get to that stand location clean? And can I get out of there clean? Or, you know, if you don't have control over your pressure, and you don't have control over your food source, which is most public land situations, and a lot of private land situations where you have like permission-based hunting or even a lot of leases, you really have to be specific with your timing. So you pick that specific three to five day window during the rut, during the pre-rut, when you think you're gonna have the best opportunity at a mature buck on the property, and you key in on that, and you just play it smart, work from the outside in, and try and make one good killing move on that deer instead of just, well, I think I'm gonna go hunt my best stand on the first day of my vacation, and you get out there and the wind's not right for it. And that buck busts you from 50 yards away in the brush when the wind swirls or something, you know, whatever the scenario is, mm-hmm. again, you know, play it, play it smart, you know, hunt, hunt smart and work your way into that situation. But then again, if you have all the intel and you know, cause again, you, you had that same scenario play out the previous season, you know what the wind does there on this wind, you get in there and you see the sign, everything's lining up, make that move. You, know, you have to trust your instincts and, and go with your intuition. And the more
1: at some point that yeah.
0: you experience that stuff and you come up with these plans, that helps you build up that actual intuition. Then you go, Oh, this makes sense. I'm going to make this mm-hmm. move. And you eliminate that indecision. And then you start killing deer. Or you sit there and you can go back and forth. And maybe you do, maybe you don't. And then you kick yourself because you didn't make that move. Right. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's a head game, right?
1: Mm hmm. All right. Awesome. Well, man, we're about like two hours in, I think this is the longest podcast I've had this year. So, and there's a ton of good info on it. <laughs> yeah. You can wear that crown. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I got to, we're going to wrap it up here, but um, I think this is all, all phenomenal info. And, um, and I think, I, I mean, I know I've, I've got come away with a few things on here that I'm going to be trying out this year, or at least keeping more, more in mind of when i'm planning out um essentially my rutcation right which is my pre- I should, uh, whatever i
0: gotta send you one of these what is it
1: i can kind of see it is it a journal yeah so
0: this is i actually put this together this year it's like all the notes kind of broke down like the specific things that i look for and I just wanted something where I could keep all my stuff organized in one place. You know, I, I yeah. write everything down because if I don't write it down, I forget it. And you know, if I'm just putting notes on my phone. It doesn't really give me that opportunity to like process that information. Right. So even when I'm trying to track a specific deer, I'm going through pictures. A lot of times I'll write down the time and date and the wind directions when it was there, mm-hmm. and then I can just kind of give my, t- my brain time to process all that info, mm-hmm. but I've got, yeah, we've got everything Essentially, like, built into this.
1: Nice. That's Everything,
0: I like, got all the stuff that I look for. So like notes on stuff like that,
1: date, time, location, wind direction, and then notes. yeah, pressure Sweet. notes,
0: food, food source tracking. That's my that's the Whitetail Ambition annual success planner. <laughs> so first <laughs> run, right planner. I love it right here. I'll get you one, and you can let me know what you think.
1: Sounds good. Hey, Tom, if people want to find you, ask you questions, possibly hire you to, to help you out, where can they what, what's the best way to do it?
0: Um, you can find me on Instagram, the Untamed Ambition, or my website is the untamedambition.com. Uh, you can shoot me an email. if you want to do it. go straight to the source Thomas at theuntamedambition.com, um, Facebook, YouTube, the Untamed Ambition.
1: Yep. And it's really the underscore untamed underscore ambition. Correct. Perfect. Got some great bucks. I'm looking at it right now. Got a last post was a giant buck, <laughs> giant 10 point. Nice browse. All right. Anyway, Tom, appreciate you having, having you on. And for everybody else, appreciate you listening to this. I hope you guys found this uh, useful. Um, if you did, and you want to hear more of it, please subscribe to the channel. And then also, if you would leave a review, leaving a review really helps me in the rankings. Um, let's other people find me. So please take the, take the time. I know I, have, I think I have like 18 reviews and I know hundreds and thousands of, uh, well, thousands, not hundreds of thousands, but thousands of you guys <laughs> listening to this. So um, please take a minute, um, go ahead. And I would really appreciate a review. Um, you can do that on, on Spotify or on iTunes. All right. Thank you everybody. And catch you next time.